The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. Listen, you guys, have I've told you before that... um, I spent some time in Canada. Many of you know that if, if you're new. I went up there for some graduate school. I was uh, in Vancouver for a little while, and uh, I, we loved it. Um, by the time that we, um, at the end of four years, uh, we did not want to leave, I'll just confess. We wanted to stay in Canada, and, um, and we kind of felt like God was maybe calling us there. Um, but one of the things that, interesting things that happened that was part of my educational experience, as much as the, the school itself, was that, that within about two weeks of, of packing up all our stuff, of, of, of kind of uprooting ourselves, newly married couple, moving up to, to, to Canada, living in this dumpy little uh, place that should be illegal. Um, I could go on and on and on with stories about that place. 9-11 happened. Um, I remember, I, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, you, you, different periods, we can remember these significant moments where you're looking at the TV and you just cannot believe what is happening. You know, I'm adjusting my rabbit ears. You know, we were that poor. You know, trying to figure out how to get this thing to come in and, and yet seeing this, this horrible events unfold. Well, we spent some time up there, and, and Canada w- was great, but it was also difficult to begin with. It was, and, and so I have, I have huge sympathies for those of you who are moving to a new city and trying to get established, and you're trying to figure out what's the culture here, and, and we're Americans, but you don't seem like the Americans I know. And, you know, and, and think about that, and then I'm in, we're in a foreign country, and, and yet they kind of seem, you know, they talk English, and, and, and sort of seems like America, but, it, but it's not, and... We don't fit in here and all this kind of stuff. And, and Canadians, were, they were very gracious to us. The folks that went up there, they were very gracious, especially um, while all, the, all the stuff was going on in the aftermath and all that. But I just, we, Shannon and I had the hardest time, you know. And so we would come down and, and it was just hard to feel at home. You know, we came down a, a little bit and there was just times where you just wanted to get away. You wanted to get back to America, right? The, where I belong, right? I knew... I knew it, I, it was like a gift for me. I came down one day, and we went down and we drove into Whatcom County, and I just, you know, I was, we were driving behind some just ginormous truck, right? Huge bumpers way up, and on the back is just a bumper sticker I've never seen before, get her done. <laughs> and I just thought, God bless America. <laughs> you know, Vancouver's great, you know, but, you know, we're kind of urban. It's kind of got the little bit, it's got a little bit of kind of a, a European feel, you know, kind of... You know, and then here I am, I'm driving behind just a, an enormous truck, just thinking, get her done. Yes, yes. These are my people, right? These are the people that just get after it. They, 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 they don't let anything get in their way. They just, they shoot right after it. And I think there's, you know, there's a little bit, I grew up in the mountains, and so there's a little bit far, you know, for me, I just think, yeah, you just got to get out there, get your hands dirty, and just stop, don't complain, right? I just feel like I'm home. America, I'm in a foreign land. What am I supposed to do? I love that. You know, there's something about uh, us as as Americans that that is, you know, they have that sense of we could just do anything we want. And I think if if anything, we hear that all the time, don't we? You can do and be anything that you want. You know, we're told that it, it's inbred in us. It, it, it's something that we believe, and and that and that somehow that the world is ours. And in many ways, we have more opportunity now than ever before, don't we? 
I mean, really. I mean, we can we could go around. Many of us have the opportunity, even if we don't feel rich, to be able to go around the world to have experiences that that our grandparents would never even dream of. You know, in some ways, there's that there's that sense where we have the world is open to us, and I know that. I don't know about you, but I, I know I realized I was good at just about anything. And so I, I could do just about anything. Now, I wasn't be great at anything, and it might, it might take a lot out of me, but I could do just about anything. And so, you know, when people come up and they go, well, what are you going to do with your life? You know, this is through school or, or even after school. What are you going to do with your life? And you're just like, I don't know. Well, well, what are you good at? Most things, you know? I mean, a lot of you are like that. You, you know, you could do most things. You know, there's a lot of ways you can go. And, and so there's a sense on one hand where we go, there's a tremendous optimism that we have and, and, and a tremendous kind of force that comes from inside of us that, that pushes us out. And yet at the same time, we also realize that it can be overwhelming and ultimately paralyzing. It can be that sense where we look at a million options and can't pick one. And, and so sometimes we, we vacillate, I think, in between, at least I have, in between a, a sense of drive and, and power and, yet, and then also a sense of passivity. I realize I, I get excited about something and I head off in a direction, and, but pretty soon I realize that, that whatever was inside of me is just not enough because the, we get overcome by all the external forces that are out there, you know, the, the them, the, the they, the, 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 the system, you know, that's against us. And pretty soon you get discouraged and you begin to, to, to come back. And, and what can often happen is that we can end up starting to kind of sink into places of sort of, uh, of apathy or cynicism. You go, well, you know, it would be great if things were different, but they just aren't. You know, and I can't do anything about it. It's easy to go that way. It's easy to, to, to just say, well, if something would change someday, maybe it would be different. But, I, you know, I, the world, it's, it's, this, it's this irony, this paradox. The world is my oyster, and yet I can't taste it at the same time. I think it's captured in songs. That, when I was preaching at UPC, Kyle was bold enough to actually sing a Coldplay song called Fix You, hitting these falsetto notes that I just, like, the whole time I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, I would be shattering windows if I tried that. And it was... Brutal, and yet there's something wonderful about some about that song because it, it kind of captures this desire in us to make a difference and to and to see the the, the hurt in the world changed, fixed, and yet it, it, there's this little this little caveat in there. I will try to fix you because I know that all I can do is try. John Mayer. I've mentioned this song before. I think it's fascinating. He, I love John Mayer. He's got the song though, you know, waiting for the world to change. And and I, as I listen to a, him share about it, you know, it's just he goes, you know, that's we feel like we can't do anything. I mean, we have the desire and yet we can't, and so we're just waiting. There's a million things that we could point out that are wrong, but until it changes, until they get out of the way, we'll never be able to do anything. See, so we get empowered. And yet then we also feel overwhelmed. There's a, there's a sociologist down in, in the University of um, San Diego who did this interesting study. He said, you know, we're more empowered. We have more messages that tell us that we can do it than ever before. And we have more opportunity. And yet we are also generally, in the big picture, more miserable than ever. And it's because I think we believe that we should be able to get everything. And yet when we realize the reality of life, it looks very different. And that gap then leads us to despair. 
And the thing is for us, as we begin to talk about it and we raise hope on what is it that God might want us to do? What, how is it that boots should kind of land? How can we put our faith into action in the world? We can raise hopes and at the same time have this sense of despair. And we will. And we will get stuck. And we won't be able to put it into action until we begin to realize that it is, we have to, it can't, it has to be more than what is inside of us, than simply what we bring into it. Because as long as it is, we will stay overwhelmed. Well, we've been looking at this book of Nehemiah, and I just launched into Nehemiah last, last week, and I didn't really give much background to it. We just were talking about this guy, and he's a cupbearer, and he's, and he wants walls. And so some of you are like, I, well, I don't know who this guy is. Um, so what I want to do is I want to back up a little bit. And what we kind of did is we kind of looked at an introduction on the book a little bit last week. But who, who, what is going on here? Well, this book really, it's the story of, of a rebuilding of a desolated city that really is about the rebuilding of a people. Okay, about 585 B.C., Babylonian soldiers came in and they destroyed Jerusalem. They knocked the temple down. They destroyed that. They, they knocked down the buildings, the important buildings. They knocked down the walls. And then they carried off the majority of the people into a foreign land. And they left only the poorest of the poor remaining. So these people were being marched across the desert wondering what happened to the God that is supposed to be over everything. As they are following their king that has had his eyes gouged out and is now in shackles. It begins this, this time that we call the exile. And the exile is this time when, it, when, when the people of God begin to get a new vision. They begin to own up to the past and, and, and the part that they played in going very, very wrong. That they realize that, that as a people, they didn't look like the God that had called them. That they began looking like the, the nations around them. Nations in which brutality ruled the day. In which lies ruled the day. They began to, to lose their way, and so there's a time of repentance. There's a time of, uh, of owning things up, and then a time of hope again. Well, it's now a hundred years later, and prophets have been speaking in words of hope and, and words of also time for us to repent. And a hundred years later, and suddenly there's something that begins to move. And something begins to happen. And, and Artaxerxes is this guy. We read him last week. He's the guy. He's on the throne. He's, he, he is the king of the Persian Empire. And there are three leaders that have arisen. You have this guy, Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are books that go together. And Ezra has a passion that the people would begin to understand God's law. Because if we can understand God's law, we can understand God's character. If we can understand his character, we can realize who he has called us to be. And so there's this, his passion is the centrality of coming around God's word again. Then there's this guy, Zerubbabel, who, who, who has a passion to rebuild the temple. And, and he does all the organizing and, and building the temple up again. The, the center of, the worship, of worship for um, the Israelites in Jerusalem. And he begins to work on that. And then you have this guy, Nehemiah. And Nehemiah has been tapped to, to be able to, to go back and rebuild the walls. The, the three of these guys kind of overlap, but each of them have a unique place in restoring the glory to Jerusalem, as Jerusalem has just been devastated. And as you meet this guy, you, he's kind of an unlikely character. He's a cupbearer. In other words, he, he, he plays this role within the, the king's court. He, he's in this high position. And it's interesting, so interesting that you know, we're looking at a guy and you're like, he's a cupbearer. I mean, he's actually serving the king that has caused a lot of the, the destruction and a lot of the harm. 
for this nation. He's in some ways he's sold out. He's living. He's living pretty. He's not doing bad, but he's come up and he's found himself. But the problem is that his brother came back and he asked, hey, hey, Ezra and Zerubbabel and the others, they sent a bunch of people back and they began to think about repopulating the city and and how is it going? And his brother begins to share with him, it's not going well. We read this last week, that, that the people are in great trouble and disgrace and the wall is broken down and, and suddenly Nehemiah's cozy Good life gets messed up because his heart breaks. See, he longs to see, not just the walls restored, but he longs to see, and this is what we talked about, the glory restored. And for, to understand the glory or the presence of God, we have to understand shalom. And shalom is this idea of, uh, we translate it peace, but it's really not a, kind of a, a stative thing where you're just, you're just trying to make sure that nothing bothers you. It's an active, proactive thing in which there is absolutely the flourishing of life on all levels. And he begins to say, I want to be a part of that. And it's the walls in particular that, that grab Nehemiah. And so we realize that if, if we are to really understand what God has called us to, that he's called us to a big vision. That goes not just not just the spiritual, but it goes from the spiritual to emotional and social to, to even the physical structures within a city that God cares about everything. And so the vision is big. It's huge. It includes every single one of your gifts, your passions, the things that you're good at. This is not about just those that, Bible study leaders. Man, if I was just a Bible study leader, God could maybe use me. If I was just a Sunday school teacher, God could maybe use me. If I was just a pastor, God could maybe use me. He's calling every single one of us to be part of something because what he is about is something that is global, cosmic. But here we are. We're back there again, right? We're stuck. We're going, well, great. Everything and nothing. And so we begin to see the Nehemiah begin to sort of get his boots on the ground by first of all starting with a sense of where does his heart break within the cosmic, the cosmic action that God is about. The cosmic plan of redemption, where is the one part where my heart particularly breaks? Because it's in that place that I begin to realize my small part, that my small part will take my whole life, will take everything I have to be able to live into it. But I got to figure out my small part. And it came as he began to to put himself within the context uh, of something bigger than himself. And we see that in his prayer. But it starts with his heart breaking. He wasn't called to solve everything, to do everything. I mean, I just shared with you that there are three different people who play major roles. His role had to do primarily with the walls and then some other things we see. But where is my small part? And the question for us is, where is our small part where our heart breaks? And it might look like something physical. It might look like the structures that we live in that actually provide a safe place for communities to flourish. It might look like taking on and doing community development. It might look very spiritual as we begin to restore God's Word and and His truth in, in lives. Well, when we ended, Nehemiah had this prayer and he got fired up, didn't he? And so he ends this way. End of chapter 1. Oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the Prayer of this your servant and the prayers of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was a cupbearer to the king. And we see that suddenly when he put himself under the context, something bigger than himself, the sovereignty of God, the God of the heavens, that suddenly the king who held the power of life and death is suddenly just this man. And you're like, woo, here we go. Fired up. 
right? Well, that's where we're going to take off today. If you're, if you want to follow along with me, we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter two. I'm going to read the first uh, nine verses. So Nehemiah chapter two, the first nine verses, you can also follow up on the screen uh, behind me. Here we go. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. In the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of the king of Art, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, and so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This could be nothing but sadness of heart. We gotta pop, we gotta stop right there for a second, right? Right? This, he's saying, give me, we left off him going, hey, let's fire it up. Let's get it going. Tomorrow, we're going to make it happen. And yet, we're talking about three months later. Okay, we, we have this little, this little clue in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year, that, that this is over 100 days later. I mean, come on, bro. Get after it. I mean, what happened with all the big talk, Right. Hey, the king, nah, no big deal. He's just this man. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna ha- I'm looking for success tomorrow. And yet, a hundred days later, three over three months, we see Nehemiah. He's still sitting there. He's, he's, he's sold out. He's still sitting. In, he's in the king's court. He hasn't done a single thing. And we've got to begin to wonder, what the heck is going on? What are you doing? Come on, boy, get after it. I thought you were fired up. And yet we realize that there's this lag. And, we, and really we should pause and go, what is that about? And in some ways, what are you still doing being a cupbearer? I mean, seriously, you've got bigger things to do. And yet it is this little pause, this little moment of time, this, this three or so months that is going to be absolutely vital to the story. In fact, it is what is, happens in this three months that is actually going to help this, this huge undertaking get off the ground. It's this moment, this in-between time that, that feels like a waste of time and yet it becomes vital. I think it's good for us to hear that for, we get the sense that you, know, you, you get a call and then you just jump after it. I mean, but haven't you had those times, I know I have, where I feel like I've prayed, I, I've gone on a retreat, I have heard a great word, I, I, I've gotten fired up, I've, I, I've gotten the sense that, that whoever I thought was so threatening and held so much power over me, my boss, and whatever it is, they're nobody. He or she, nobody. Ah, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get after it. And yet when we get after it, we get this vision that our heart breaks. We go back and we realize we're frustrated. Things just don't seem to be working out. You might go, God, where the heck are you in this? What are you doing? I thought you called me to this. You broke my heart. I prayed. I spent time. And yet you might actually feel like God is just putting the roadblock, roadblock, roadblock in front of you. You get frustrated. You're going to wonder, why am I still here in this, this program? I'm still going in this program and I, Sucking the life out of me, this job or no job or no relationship or, or, or no place. And I just feel like I'm still stuck. I'm in that in-between time. Well, it turned out that this in-between time for Nehemiah was key time. It was time for him where he continued to pray, plan, wait for the right moment. In such a way that he was going to see that he was empowered by so much more than simply his own passion, his own drive, his own his gumption to be able to get out there and do it. It was in those moments where, for us where we realized that, why am I in this dead-end job? God, you call me something so much more. That so often we learn the lessons. 
We have our eyes opened up to dynamics we never would have seen before. We begin to understand really the task at hand that, that we had a vision for what that actually looks like. I mean, if we're actually going to do it, what, what is it going to take? What's the approach that we need to do? See, if there's, if beginning to find our place, it starts with our hearts being broken. The second thing I think we learned from the life of Nehemiah is this, is that we're really not ready to move forward in any meaningful way until we can understand and see the gracious hand of God at work. Get it? So often we want to get out there right away, but we are not ready to move. It, it, it will be, we will be overwhelmed and we will get knocked flat on our butts until we have the sense of seeing the gracious hand of God at work. See, it, it is this testimony that we read at the, in the, towards the end of the section that after everything that Nehemiah did... It, he just this little tag on here, and because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. This is what is going to fuel him when he goes back and he hits tough times, and he is going to just he's going to get it. I mean, there's a storm ahead of him. It is not easy going, but this is going to fuel him. This, this is what is going to help the things that he's going to get in the midst of this, as he sees God's hand in his life is actually what's going to make the project possible. It is his testimony that the gracious hand of God is on me. And here's what it looks like. That it's going to be of inspiration to be able to, to draw in a wider community. For you and I, we need that moment where we realize that God is at work and that he's taken us seriously. He's placed us in some place on purpose. And yet he is moving and we just get to join him. And sometimes it means that we just have to Sit in and be faithful in the place where we're at. Continuing to wait, continuing to pray, continuing to use our mind. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at three things. Okay, three ways in which he began to, to articulate. This is what the gracious hand of God looks like. We're going to look next week as he begins to engage a community. And he's actually going to share these things. He's going to share this story. And so we want to, what does this story look like? How can we see the gracious hand of God at work in our lives? The first is this, that it's over in overcoming fear. We read that he said, he, I was very much afraid. You look at it, you go, it's a pretty quick turnaround, bro. I mean, you were pretty bold just a couple of verses ago. And now suddenly you're very much afraid. The, the literal meaning of this is that fear seized him. Seized him. And there's a sense where he's uh, suddenly, it's like the moment has come that he's been looking forward to that he was so bold about, and yet he's seized with, with fear. And I, it's interesting, isn't it? That we, I think this is because we like to talk about something, but when it actually comes down to doing it, that's a whole different matter, isn't it? So we can talk about what is wrong. We can, we can even talk about our, our visions and our plans and, and, and what might want to happen. But when the moment comes to actually doing something about it, whew, that's something else. So I think this is what, we talked a little bit about this at the retreat, but this is what I think is so hard within community, is that it's one thing to talk about our brokenness, and that's difficult. We don't want to share that with the, the, with the wrong kind of people, but I think sometimes it's even more difficult to talk about what we're passionate about, what we're gifted about, where we want to see God work, because if we were to say that, God might actually put us on the hook. He, he might actually ask us to do something about it, and there's nothing more frightening than that. See, Nehemiah actually had good reason to be fearful. 
the guy he's talking to, uh, kings in that era, in that, in that time, were not given to being particularly generous. Okay? They were about them. And so if there was a wrong look by someone, especially a cupbearer who's bringing me my wine and you look weird, you know what I mean? Am I getting poisoned? Are you, did you drink poison? I mean, what's going, what's going on? I just don't like, I mean, the kings at this point, they're basically like, don't be a downer, right? I want to be surrounded by happy people, right? I'm happy, you're happy, we're all happy. So when this guy comes in and he's got a sour look on his face, man, he, the king has the, the option at that point just to say, Say, hey, could you just get rid of that guy? In fact, I never want to see him again. Would you just hang him? Make sure I don't see. I mean, he had every right to fear. His life was on the line. What about this? He could have been accused of treason. He could have been wrongly accused. He could have been falsely accused. That Perhaps he's got bad motives. If he steps out, he's got bad motives. See, here's what had happened uh, years earlier. We, we get this out of Ezra chapter 4. There was a group that was sent back with all the blessings in the world to rebuild the temple and there were, there were people that were sent back and yet there were enemies that did not want to see Jerusalem restored. And so they ended up writing to the, to the king and they began to say, hey, just letting you know, I don't think you really want this project to go forward. Okay? You might want to check the history books, but I think that you're going to see that this is a city, it, it's rebellious, it's full of troublesome kings, and it is a place of rebellion from ancient times. This, you don't want this thing to happen. And so the king goes back and he actually looks, in, looks at the history books. He goes, you know what? Actually, that place has been a pain in the butt year after year after year. We do not want this. And so he actually forcibly stops the rebuilding. He, send, he sends back a decree and says, until, until I change my mind, I want you to actually go in there and stop the rebuilding. And, and by force, the building is stopped. And so... To come up, for Nehemiah to come up and begin to talk to him, he could say, well, Nehemiah, what, I, thought, I thought we were buddies, bro. Drinking wine together, and now you, you want to be about rebuilding a city that is full of rebellion to me? Where, where, where are your priorities? What about position? See, Nehemiah, you know, you could say he's sort of sold out to the foreign power, but man, he's got a comfortable. You know, he doesn't know any better. He's stuck in this land. It wasn't his fault. I mean, it's just, he just made the best that he could. And, and yet when he gets up there, he's putting his position on the line. I mean, the king could easily say, get out of my, get out of my sight. I'm going to throw you in the dungeon. His position, well, what about guilt? I mean, he's probably wondering, you know, what have I been doing this whole time? I've been enjoying the very best of this empire. You know, what, is, why, what do you care Seriously, are you just, okay, here's the deal. I know you feel bad for the Jews because you feel you got a good life. So I, I get it, but you don't really care. You're just trying to make yourself feel better, right? Well, what, whatever it is, he's got to be able to overcome this sense of, this sense of fear. Nehemiah, as we'll see, is not a guy who is easily given to fear. But as bold as it goes, he has to be able to get past this thing. And so I think that's for us. We are surrounded. We don't often have to worry about losing. We don't have to worry about losing our lives. But fear, anxiety surrounds us all the time. It's powerful. I mean, just look at so much advertising that is out there. And we do it in the church sometimes. We use fear as a tactic because it's a great motivator. It gets people moving. It gets people to stop. Fear, we're surrounded by fear all the time. Fear that something is going to go wrong. For many of us, it's that thing that gets in, in the way of us actually taking that step to we, where we can actually experience 
the gracious hand of God that is actually alive and at work and powerful in our world. Fear, what are people going to think of me? What are they going to accuse me of? How am I going to be misunderstood? What am I going to lose? Man, this could really mess my life up. What if I look silly, out of control, vulnerable? What if I hope big and realize that my hopes are not met? One of the moments in my life that I, I had to get over was a se- sense of self-protection. And I, I've shared this a little bit, but I just, there's this moment where I had to realize that I had built a bubble around myself and I looked good. I mean, there was a- any, any group I went into, they would go, man, that is a nice Christian boy. And yet I had built this bubble up around me that I never stepped beyond that because I knew if I did, I, would be, I couldn't control things anymore. I was afraid of what people would think about me. What if I looked silly? What if, what if God didn't come through? And yet it, it's a miserable existence. I've got to say, I, I, I want you to know, I want you to be able to give testimony to one day that my hand is upon you. I want to help you move beyond the fear that is stopping you from taking whatever step it is. Whatever step it is. Wherever you are at, a step closer to me. Well, Nehemiah will look back later and he'll declare to people, I was frightened, but by God's gracious hand, I had the power to speak. Second thing is this, is that he was given the words to say, the right words to say. Now remember, the king had stopped building because of the accusation of sedition. Now, if Nehemiah simply brought up, hey, listen, we've got to fix the walls in Jerusalem, that immediately he's gonna, the king is going to shut them off and go, I, I shut that whole thing down. That was a mess. But, but note what he doesn't say here. What he says and what he doesn't say. May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city, he didn't say mention Jerusalem, where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. See, this is brilliant. It's brilliant because, number one, he doesn't mention Jerusalem, so he doesn't immediately tip off the king. Because really what he's asking is that you've got to reverse your decision. I'm asking you to actually uh, turn around what you thought was a good idea. And so I've got to somehow come at you from a different angle. If I just talk about walls and defenses, man, this thing's going to get shot down so fast. And he realizes, he begins to talk about this thing, like... You never really see this sense of my fathers are buried. Like, who cares? Why is he saying that? Well, he's saying that because Persians worshipped those, their ancestors. There, there was a sense of reverence for the ancestors. And that, so that graves were holy, sacred sites. And so what he does is he, he allows the king to be able to, to reframe his idea, to, to, to see things from a different nerve. He hits a nerve of the king where the king goes, man, it's just not right. That the graves of ancestors would be desecrated. See, there's this moment where he's able to break through in a way that the king, he would not have been able to otherwise because of the words that were being said. This moment mattered. It mattered so much. Every single word he was saying made a difference. He wasn't going to get another chance like this. And so it is in this moment that God graciously gave him the right words to say. See, if he had stomped in there earlier and he just said, hey, listen, what, here's what's wrong. Jerusalem is in ruins. But the people aren't doing well. You need to let me go and get out of here. I mean, he just would have got, I mean, dude, the guy would have been either dead or thrown to the curb, kicked to the curb. And, you know, in this intermediary time where he's waiting, where he's frustrated, he probably is beginning to learn, okay, let's think about this. This whole thing went south before. 
as Ezra went back, because he got accused of sedition, how, how, what's the angle that I can come at? To be able to help him to understand and to not see this purely as a threat, to be able to, be able to see it differently. See, there's something that's so important, there's a great challenge for us of being able to clearly articulate, this is what I want, but also to realize that the person who I'm talking to matters. How can I speak in such a way that they can hear me? How can I speak into to what matters to them so that I can communicate what matters so much and simply just saying, I've got to tell you the truth. Listen up. Nobody responds to that. But also, he didn't kind of squirm around things either. Now, the point of this, you guys, is not that we need to figure out how can we have manipulative language, but it's to note that God promises that he will give us the words to say in the time. That Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, listen, there will be these moments when they will arrest you. He's talking about the Gentiles and kings. They will arrest you, but don't worry what to say and how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. There are these moments in which some of us are stuck because we're wondering, I don't know what, exactly what I'm going to do, what I'm going to say. I don't have the right words. I don't have the right arguments lined up. And what God is saying is, look, I want you to, to be bathed in prayer with me. I want you to know my heart. I want you to stop. I want you to listen. I want you to look for my moving. And then in that moment, in a time in which you think this is all wrong, his disciples would be going, I should be out proclaiming the gospel and now I'm arrested? I'm being thrown in before foreign leaders? God's going to say, I'm going to do something that you never would imagine. I'm going to have you preach the gospel to rulers that would never hear this otherwise. I will give you the words to say and you'll be able to give testimony to that at some point. When the king asks, he says, what, what do you want? He, he responds, so what is it that you actually want? And Nehemiah throws up this prayer, and it's one of those prayers that I love because it's, it's, you know, there's, Nehemiah was a man of prayer. He, he fasted, he wept, for sure. He, he, had a, he had a life of prayer, and yet it's also one of those prayers that probably most of us know. You know, like you're in line, and suddenly something goes on, or you're sitting outside of an office, or right before a test, right? It's almost like we think of the, the Hail Mary prayers, right? Holy smokes, God, help out, help me out. I mean, I've prayed them on that. But this is, it's something more for Nehemiah. It's not so much that it's just like he doesn't, he never prays, but this is an ongoing part of prayer that it's just, he recognizes that God is with him, that is among him, that he's walking, he's right there. And so, yeah, he prayed it. He prayed and he spent its quiet time and he's on his own. And yet now in this moment, this crucial moment, God is right there. And so he recognizes, he says, I'm going to throw up a quick one right here because I know you're with me. Here we go. I think this is that sense for us when we can begin to think of what does it mean to pray unceasingly. We hear that language sometimes. What is it? Pray unceasingly. It's not that we're always like wherever we're at, we're like this. Don't bother me. I'll get to your report in a minute, right? I'm just, I'm praying. I'm praying unceasingly. Right? It's a sense of this constant conversation. Wherever we're at. God, what are you doing here? What, what do you want me to do? Lord, give me the words to say. Give me the strength to stand for what is right. Help me to speak truth. Oh, Oh, Lord, give me grace. Seriously. I need some grace for this person. Lord, I need patience. You've got to be kidding me. This person is driving me bonkers. Give me grace. It's a sense of a constant conversation because God is as much there as He is in our quiet time. Well, the third thing is this, is that He is able to see the gracious hand of God in providing for the specifics. 
Because after the, to the king's response, he gets real specific. Sometimes what we do is we, when we launch out, when we haven't had time to think about it and to, to look ahead, what would this actually look like? We can end up feeling like things get squishy and it's no wonder we feel paralyzed, right? Dave talked about this a little bit at the retreat as far as like sometimes when we're going up and we're asking each other out, we get squishy, right? We don't say what we really want. It just is weird. It's gross. It kind of feels... Right? Sometimes people, they, they kind of, you know, they might ask a question, well, what do you want or what are you about or, or, or tell me what you're thinking and we get squishy because we don't, we don't want to say what we really want. We just kind of want to dance around it a little bit. And, and what's interesting is that people, that actually doesn't really do any good, especially for those who are wondering, what, what are you about and what is this faith thing about? And they actually kind of go, ooh, it's just kind of squishy. Right? I wish they would, I think they want to say something, but they won't say it. He gets real specific, and I love it. He had time to think about this. He, he couldn't act. He couldn't use his hands. He couldn't use his feet. But in his intermediary, intermediary time, he had time to pray with his heart and think with his mind. So check this out. He gets real specific. What do you want? What do you want? Here's the deal. I want you to send me back to rebuild. I, I, I want you essentially saying, look, I want you to change your mind. I want you to change your decree. And I want you to send me back with a mandate. Got it. All right. So how long is it going to take? How long is it going to take? Okay, I'm going to need time off to do this. And so I'm going to tell you exactly how much time off I need. Is that all right? Got it. You see how he's going down through? And then he goes on and, and he begins to get a little more bold. And he goes, all right, look, here's the deal. There was this whole group and part of the trans-Euphrates and, and they undermine this whole process. And in fact, they probably would want to, they probably would want to attack me along the way or do something like that. So here's the deal. Can I get some letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates just to make sure that I, I have safe passage? What do you think about it? Got it. Bam, right? He's fired up at this point. So suddenly now he's actually got, he's got a cavalry and an army that is taking him back. And then one more thing. Oh, just one more, one more, one more, one more. Just a little thing, little thing. Listen, could I just get a letter to this guy named Asaph, keeper of the king's forest? I mean, isn't it weird? Why does he know that? Why does he know who this dude is? Keeper of the king's forest. I don't know if he's a guy with a big green hat. You know, standing with an axe kind of at the edge of the floor. I don't know who he is. But it, the point is, this guy unlocks the resources that Nehemiah needs. It's almost like he's like, hey, listen, I got this big project. Thanks for letting me go. That's great. I'm just wondering if you could give me an open line of credit at Home Depot. Right? What, is it, what does he get? He asked for it. He got it. Bam. You get it? I need you to change your mandate. I need you to send me back and change your decision. Got it. I need you to give me, uh, I need you to give me safe passage. Got it. I need you to give me time off. Got it. I need you to give me an open line of credit to get, provide everything that I need. Major resources for this project. Got it. Amazing, isn't it? See, so often what we, we don't get specific or we think, well, perhaps we have this idea that, that, you know, if we're really spiritual, we don't, we don't have to spend all this time planning. And yet so often what happens is that we don't actually, if we plan, we can ask, find out the specific things that we need and then ask for those things. Many of us don't really know what the gracious hand of God looks like because we never ask for anything specific. We just stop at, hey, do you think I could maybe, maybe go? Okay, great. But Nehemiah, he's thought about this and he said, 
look, I'm going to need this, and I'm going to need this, and I'm going to need this. And you can imagine, he never would have thought that he would have everything that this thing needs. A mandate. And it all became, all came because he happened to be a cupbearer. The wrong job. But suddenly it became the right job because of the place he was in. I, I love this story. I just got to share it just because we have Haiti coming up. And it, it's not true for everyone. Everyone has a different experience of, of what it looks like as they get time off. And I know that when you think about something like Haiti, you think, oh, man, I got to get, get off work. And I don't know how that's going to work. And then there's the money thing and, and then on and on and on. And, and it comes together one way or another. That's just the thing. I, I've been doing mission trips for a long time. It comes together one way or another. One of the stories that I love was... was very first time we were going down to New Orleans, there was a gal that was here, and, and she was in the middle of a job interview, and, and she said, um, I, I need work, and yet I really want to go on this trip to New Orleans, and, and so um, I better just tell the people I'm interviewing with. I've got to be honest. So she was in there, she goes, you know, I, you, I basically would be here for a week, and then I would be gone on this trip, so I need to tell them, but it's probably going to undermine me, un- undermine my job. So she was in there. She said, look, I've got to be straight with you. I'm going on this, this service trip with my church. We're going to go down and do some rebuilding in New Orleans. And, and uh, you know, there it is. It is what it is. I know you're interviewing other people. Well, the response that she got is she began to step, step out and say specifically what is going on and, and offer that up to the Lord, is that what happened is that they, they decided we're done with interviews. The HR director decided we're done with interviews. You're the person we want. We're going to hire you. Why? Because you're the kind of, you're the kind of person that we want, a person that cares, a, a kind of person who will give their time away. We don't need to interview anybody else. She got the job right there. Isn't that amazing? Now, it doesn't mean that everything that we do, that we simply ask for, we're going to get. But we're never going to know until we ask, until we put it out there, until we say, Lord, you know, it's great to be able to go, but, you know, hey, we could, use an, we could use an open credit line at Home Depot for this thing. You're never going to know until you ask. We need to begin to ask. Our faith is going to have, uh, boots are going to hit the ground as we begin to, to not only let, be, realize what's the passion, what's the, how does our heart break, but also as we begin to, to have that time in which we can see that God's work God's gracious hand is in the midst of us. And sometimes it means that we wait through some really painful times, you guys. I know it. I know some of you are in the midst of looking for a job and it's killing you. And you're wondering, what in the heck is going to go on? I've been through those times. I've held on and, and realized, what is it you want to teach me today? And then realized that the very stuff that happened at the crappy job that I was at, the job that I should not be at, was the very things that, that led to God opening up the position I love. It, it's the story of this position. That's why I love being here, because God's gracious hand was upon me. And I can tell you, it wasn't about me. It was about what God was doing for me. And now I have the privilege of walking with you guys and seeing what God is going to do in your life. It, it is the greatest thing in the world. I never thought it would happen. And it took me a year, a long, dark year. God begins to do His work in our lives and empower us for that work when we give that time to look for Him, to think, to ask, to get specific, to take that risk. He'll call us to be able to, to, 
to take on a goal on a job that is much bigger than we could possibly ever imagine, to begin to do something about whatever it is in the small area of our world in which God wants to make His shalom, His peace, break out. For some of you guys, it might be this, that you might need to look around and realize, I need somebody else to help me. I have a vision for something, but I need somebody else. I cannot do it on my own. I don't have what it takes. Ask for it. Begin to pray for it. Begin to look around and talk about it. And here's what's true, is that some of you in here are actually the answer to somebody else's prayer. There's somebody that has a vision or passion for something, but they need you and your skills. And as you begin to realize that perhaps you're the answer to their prayer, that they are the answer to your prayer as well, as where you're looking out and saying, what is it that we could do together as community? Community is what we're going to look at next week. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for what you do in and through us, for how you're leading us. Lord, we pray that we would have a sense of knowing your gracious hand in our lives, that before we launch out to do something on our own power, we wait and we look for yours. We look for what you are doing and how you are going to provide, how you're going to help us to overcome fear, to have the words to say, to be able to to, to see you provide in ways that we never thought were possible. Lord, give us patience in the meantime and clear minds as we wait for you.